Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. Today on the program, we have got a treat for you. A team of reporters, social commentators, and stars of the hit podcast, Blocked and Reported, Jesse Single and Katie Herzog. Now, I first fell in love with them through Katie, who is the funniest thing going on Twitter. I mean, you've got to find if you don't follow her on Twitter, she's a reason to join Twitter. She's just got a sense of humor like none other. And he's right there with her. He's just actually come out with a new book, which you might find interesting, too. We'll talk about it a little bit about fad psychology and why it can't cure our social ills. What? What? <laughs> just just when you thought you had life solved. <laughs> But these two are sort of, I I think I described them the other day as sort of disaffected liberals or sort of liberals who have been kicked out of the liberal crew because they're not taking the same approach to issues like, I don't know, transgender uh, rights as others. I mean, they're totally pro-trans rights, 100% pro, but they write openly about some of the issues that have been caused, like what happens when somebody detransitions and what happens with some of these puberty blocking drugs? Is it as safe as people would have you believe? Actual journalism, that's all it is, but they get hammered, right? They get hammered. Nonetheless, they persist and they haven't lost their senses of humor along the way. Their podcast is described as, and I quote, part politics, part pop culture, part obsessive dissection of esoteric internet slap fights and sporadically insightful. Anyway, you're going to enjoy the conversation. We'll get to them one second. I promise you'll like them. But first this. Hey, guys. Hey. Hi. Thank you so much for having us, Megan. The pleasure is all mine. I'm ex- I'm so excited. There's so many things I want to ask you, including this one. Katie, I love you on Twitter, and I don't understand why you... Are you wearing a scuba suit in your little Twitter? What is it? What are you wearing in that little picture? It is a... So I was a... Um, I had a show on the local like PBS station, and at one point, they forced me to put on a wetsuit and a scuba mask and swim in a tank with salmon. This is what they, this is what PBS, this is what taxpayer money goes to. <laughs> so that's just to see from. if they were swimming upstream. I don't like, why no, did they make you do it that? Was, it was, in a, it was like, it's sort of an environmental kind of show. And it was, uh, I don't actually remember what the exact episode was about, but, um, but it was an, an actual tank, like a, like a holding tank for like baby salmon that they would eventually re- release into the water. It was very weird. I love it because to me, it bespeaks of a lack of vanity, which to which I cannot relate, <laughs> <laughs> but I admire it in other women. Well, it also has the added benefit of, of uh, not showing my face. So, um, so there's that. There's also that. <laughs> well, I saw something funny you tweeted out the other day. Maybe it was, I don't know, it was recent, but you said something like, I love taking flights to, was it? Where was oh, it? Vail. Colorado? I just got back. Vail. Yeah, I just got back from Vail. Yeah. yeah. Vail, because it, it la- allows me to keep up in the latest developments in plastic <laughs> surgery. <laughs> also fur, lots of fur and veil. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So okay. It's a whole thing. I, I don't do veil a lot, so I didn't know that. It, you know, it's, it's Aspen Light, you know, same, same vibe. Okay. Um, I, what I do know about, I think it's veil, is when you go out there and you drive to, you know, the mountain, there's a big liquor store called Beaver Liquors. It's <laughs> 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 kind of fantastic. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to stop by next time I go. <laughs> right. Right. Um, anyway, we go out to Montana, which is actually pretty nice. And uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I'm going to I'm going to look at it in a new light now for, for new yeah. plastic surgery advances. I had never considered that. But every time I go to Scottsdale, Arizona or L.A., yes, I have the same feeling as you. 
<laughs> you know, I'm probably only noticing the bad, the bad plastic surgery because you, you surely don't actually notice the good plastic surgery. Well, can I tell you, I think that might be the difference between like New York and L.A. because the women here, I think, are vain, but the they just don't look like they've been trying too hard. You know, right. in L.A., yeah, that's you see is. a lot of those huge lips and the huge boobs mm-hmm. and the huge butts. Yeah. And in New York, it's sort of more like an effortless like, wow, was she? why does she still look 20 when she just yeah. got her social security <laughs> card? Right. Like in Seattle, <laughs> it's just uh, it's just flannel and uh, and, and fleece. There's, there's it's, it's not a very vain city. I don't think I could make it there. No, wait, are you there? No. I live I live in a I live in like a navy town outside Seattle but that's where I, where I was for uh, until I bought a house out in kind of the suburbs but yeah. Okay. I don't I mean you tell me but whenever I do a story about like some conservative who got run out of Seattle for a bad tweet or a bad I'm like I I'm not a conservative but I think I'm associated enough with the brand that I I don't think I'd be happy. I think people wouldn't like me. You would be you would be run out of town. It w- I mean, I'm not kidding when I say like Alex Jones was in was in Seattle for I think like five five minutes before somebody threw a cup of coffee in his face. Oh my god! Wait, yeah, you're not, that, you're not I'm equating not me to uh, no no no, <laughs> Wait, no 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 no. I'm not I'm not equating the two. I'm not equating the two. Not at all. I but mean, Katie I'm Herzog saying, couldn't yeah. couldn't really live there. They right. Said- Right. Our stickers all up calling her a Turk and everything. Right. If I'm problematic, you would be incredibly problematic in Seattle. Yes. Where are you, Jesse? Where do you live? I live in Brooklyn. I'm recording this uh, from my parents' house outside Boston. I'm visiting them. Okay. So how did you two connect? Um, online. We, uh, we met first through email. I emailed Jesse when I was working on a story about detransitioners, and then we became Twitter buddies. Um, we get asked that question a lot, and I think we should start giving different answers every time. Um, say we like we met at Twitter rehab or something like that. No, we were we were married briefly in the nineties. Yeah. It's a it's a long story. Yeah, yeah, we met at, at Adult Swim Camp. Um, oh no, I like that. Yeah. Okay, but really, so we you just met online. So it was Twitter love that brought you together, I, which I like. Uh, Twitter, it was Twitter love. It was Twitter love that brought me together with you too. Um, yeah, I fell in love with both of you guys. Just you're so clever. Your approach to humor is so you're just you're just you're not afraid to say anything, which is rare in a journalist. You make fun <laughs> of anyone and everything, which I also love, most of all yourselves and each other. Um, so there's something kind of endearing about your act, you know, like just the two of you mocking each other in a in a loving, respectful way. Uh, but there's something very I think like refreshing. underneath the underneath the Twitter stick, there's no actual personality. So we need to take up this front. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so now. Are are you the other day when I was teasing you guys? I'm like, how should I tease these guys? And I I, I went with something like, what did I say? Like ost- ostracized liberals or heterodox? I know you hate that word, liberals. But like, you would you? Am I correct to say you're you're more left leaning, but you've kind of been kicked out of the club because you've reported honestly on certain trans issues that have led people to say terrible things about you? I think that's fair. I mean, it's weird. So the reason I bristle a little at heterodox is like when you look at the views we've actually expressed, they you know, 95% of the country would find them uncontroversial. What's so weird about media right now is like, you you, you need to be in that 5% to re- remain in the good graces of sort of everyone on Twitter. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we've tried to push back against the idea that that we've said anything all that controversial, although the fact you that haven't. people treat it as controversial tells you something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about that because th- this is, there was a great piece about you, Jesse, in Quillette, that I recommend everybody read. It's and it's called the campaign of lies against journalist Jesse Sig- Single and and why it matters. And 
and and it sort of lays out what happened to you. But one of the points I want to start with is the guy makes a great point. The author makes a great point about how all the stuff you've said, I've said it, a lot of people have said it, um, and it's not a thing. If you're at all affiliated with the right, you don't get in trouble for saying all the stuff you've said and reported. If you are affiliated with the left, they come for you. So yeah. why do you think that is? Why why do you get in such trouble for reporting that? It's not even like, hey, you should consider detransitioning de if you're trans. It's, hey, some people have detransitioned. <laughs> like that's like you're reporting in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, so I think this is a flaw that emerges in a lot of political movements. There's definitely been versions of this on the right, but it's this whole thing of like, you attack whoever is immediately to your left or to your right instead of, you know, uh, taking a bigger picture approach. So in, in recent weeks, Katie and I have both been getting attacked as though our writing inspired these state-level laws seeking to ban youth transition. But Katie and I have never come out against youth transition in, in that manner. We've just said kids should be well-assessed before they go on, um, you know, major medical treatment. So I, I think, like, maybe from the point of view of people on the left, like, there's nothing they can do about Mitch McConnell, but they can sure as hell try to drive us out of the club and have some impact on our career in a way they can't on Mitch McConnell's, which I would argue is maybe not the best approach because we're we're sort of not the problem, <laughs> uh, if you look at it correctly. But it's a, I don't know. I, I do think there's something very peculiar about uh, online politics at the moment. And there's this real drive to, to purify your own spaces. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, you tell me what you think, Katie, but I feel like it's twofold. They, they feel betrayed because you're, quote, supposed to be seeing the world, you know, as they do on their side. And also they feel more threatened because your sphere of influence is their people, you know, like th they don't want somebody saying something they don't approve of in the circles in which they travel. It's one thing if you're going to be Tucker Carlson, you're going to influence, you know, a bunch of folks who live in Mississippi, they can live with that, but they can't live with you influencing Seattle and you Brooklyn. I think that's totally right. I think both of you are right. You know, it's this sort of narcissism of small differences where you could you could agree on 95% of the issue, but that 5% just becomes intractable. And that becomes so threatening that there's this, uh, this impulse to try to remove you from the conversation. And it's really unfortunate because we should be debating these issues in a way that's evidence-based and is good faith and not resorting to personal attacks on people. Um, because I think, you know, in... in in, in reality, we all do want the same thing, which is good outcomes for everybody. Um, but our ways of getting there are, are very destructive. Well, and it, even if, if you take away sort of the overall goal of good outcomes for everybody, you're journalists. You report on the facts. The facts, you don't make the facts. You, you can, sure, you could say, I'm never going to report on anybody who's detransitioned. But why would you do that? I mean, the news is the news. This is a whole... This is a very large movement and a very large cultural development that the trans rights movement over the past 10 years in particular. And uh, we have to be able to report on it. And, and you don't get to just report the news that is pro one piece of it or it's not even a pro or anti. It's this is a piece of it. This is part of what we're seeing. It's made a lot of news just recently because of um, Kira Bell, this gal over in England who's really ticked off that she she feels she was rushed through this process and de and and transitioned from uh female to male and had a double mastectomy and is mad that not more people in the system stopped to say you sure you want this as opposed to yes yes affirm 
Yeah. And well, what's so disturbing about it is, is I, I, Katie and I both see ourselves as journalists, you know, opinion journalists, but we're not, we're not activists. It's not our job to only present one party side or the other. And the complete collapse of scientific journalism on this one subject where it's just not treated like the, it, it's basically like a, a biomedical ethics question. It is really complicated to know how to best help a 20 year old, 12 year old who is in genuine anguish. But the only tools you have in your tool belt are, are these treatments that are experimental. According to the UK government, there is not great evidence for them. I happen to think that they are the best bet for kids who would otherwise suffer a great deal. But there's a genuine conversation to be had here. And it depresses me that we've gotten to the point where I, I almost have to point people to right wing outlets that I, I on other issues don't trust very much at all because our side of the aisle just isn't covering this issue well. And covering this issue well does not mean invalidating these kids or saying they should never go on hormones. It just means treating it like any other scientific controversy. I, I found that really demoralizing and infuriating. Well, can you talk about, because you guys, you're pretty brave, I have to say, especially, you know, given that you've taken such a beating, both of you, for your reporting. Um, but I did hear you guys talking about uh, recently these, I think it was puberty blockers, and how there really are risks to these. And I will confess, I was in the camp of like, I'd heard people say that they could have potentially bad effects, but I never really researched it. Seemed like a drug, is it Lupron, that's been around a long time to, you know, for precocious puberty when somebody starts, you know, if a girl's going to get her period at eight, they'll give it to her or that kind of thing. But I was like, how bad could it be? And that gives the kid another couple of years to figure out where they are mentally if, if you're using it, if you think you're trans. I learned a lot from what you were saying in terms of the long term studies that have been done on that for kids who have received it for non-trans issues. And, and they're, they're a little scary, Katie. Yeah. So Lupron has been FDA approved since the, the early 90s as a, a pain reliever for women with endometriosis, as well as for, um, for precocious puberty. But if you, if you, it's sort of interesting. So Jesse and I did a show about this a couple, um, I guess last week, uh, specifically about the, these bills in North Carolina and Arkansas and a couple other places that would ban puberty blockers for children and even for adults in, in some cases, um, or, or ban cross-sex hormones for adults. And if you, if you Google Lupron, which is, which is the brand name of, um, of this one particular pu puberty blo blocker, and side effects, what you find is that there are some very serious side effects. And in fact, it's apparently so toxic that it's not recommended for use for more than 12 months in a lifetime. Um, I found an article from a, a Las Vegas news station that says that there are uh, that the FDA has listed over two hundred. I'm sorry, twenty five thousand adverse reports for Lupron, um, and that and there are really serious side effects like suicidal thoughts, stroke, muscle atrophy, um, joint and bo bone and joint pain. Um, some people say that it's affiliated with vision loss, and you can find lots of articles about people saying like people who were prescribed this drug for precocious puberty or some other reason who were saying they were uh, I was harmed by this drug. But if you Google Lupron transgender. What you mostly find, not entirely, but what you mostly find are these sort of, you know, uh, this is reversible. This is a this is a, a life saving drug for, for for young dysphoric children, and they're not talking about the side effects. Some will, but but most don't. Um, so you get really two different sides of the story just by doing that one exercise. Um, and and it's interesting to see this because what you see in most mostly left leading media is this is this thing repeated over and over again. This is, this is reversible. 
Um, this is just a pause. And it turns out that that's probably not always the case. And if you really care about trans kids, and I'm not saying these activists don't care about trans kids, I think they really do care about trans kids. But if you care about them in a smart way, we should be acknowledging the potential side effects, because to not do that is going to cause actual harm to the kids that you are supposed to be helping. Um, and this isn't to say that puberty blockers shouldn't be legal. I'm really, both of us are very much against these state bills. Um, we don't think that the, the state has any business getting in between, you know, patients and doctors when it comes to this or really other issues, other healthcare issues. Um, so that's not the answer either, but we really do need to grapple with the, with the very real effects of this medication and we need to do it in a way that's honest um, and not sort of, you know, not turn it into a culture war issue. And this has mm -hmm. become a culture war issue and yeah. that is making it harder to actually get to the bottom of, of what's going on right now. Well, it's so crazy when, when you list those side effects and you think they just stopped the J&J &J vaccine for six incidents of blood clots out of seven million vaccines, right? Six, six blood clots and one death, though we don't know the circumstances of that. So, but I mean, out of 7 million vaccines, it's a minuscule amount. And look at all the side effects you list on this, on this one drug, very popular and being dispensed at the ready. But I just, one point I want to follow up on is I think that the reason some of these more red states are feeling like they need to pass these bills, um, and the bills, I I'll be honest, they make me somewhat uncomfortable. But I think the reason they're feeling they could have to do it is because the the doctors have surrendered to these far left scolds who just tell them they have only one option, which which is to affirm and then prescribe. Otherwise, they're going to be in trouble. They'll be in trouble with the licensing board. You know, the the the, the massive medical industries like the AMA and, and uh, um, American Academy of Pediatrics, they're sort of leaning on these doctors now to prescribe the drugs as requested and to just affirm. And I think that's scary, too, to a lot of parents who who would prefer to have an objective medical take on where their kid is. I mean, this is one of the real problems right now is like trans healthcare is just a complete Wild West in the U.S. So um, the story I got in trouble with about this stuff on was uh, for The Atlantic. It, it was a long story. I highlighted several clinicians who are seen as affirming clinicians. They are seen as the good guys. In my view, they did a very good job helping kids work through these issues, decide, helping them decide who would benefit the most from blockers and hormones. So I hear what you're saying. I think some of these clinicians are quacks and are not doing a good job. But the, the problem is there's no real standards of care. All the standards of care we have are completely non-binding. We don't have a national health care system. So it's just like the, the care you get in rural Oklahoma versus the Bay Area it may be awful in both places, but in mm. complete opposite directions. There's just, if you're, I feel so bad for parents going through this because it's like a, a roll of the dice, whether the doctor uh, your kid goes to or the therapist your kid goes to has any idea what they're doing. And that's like, that's not a good situation. Mm -mm. Well, and Abigail Shroud just tweeted out something, a study uh, a couple of days ago about how they, they looked at uh, female to male transitioners um, who had actual surgery. And the number of complications in those cases was stunning. It was more than every single case had a complication. It was like double of those who had the procedure had serious complications and complaints and some complained of, you know, pretty significant deformities and so on. And, and she was kind of making a similar point, which is this science is so untested and trying to find doctors who are honest and actually know what they're doing is very sketchy. 
anyway, the, the way through all of that historically has been to be open and honest about it for the medical profession to report the, the errors and the problems and, and for the journalists to fearlessly report on them. So people have real information. Just feels like we're not in that place, Katie. Right. So I, I haven't seen uh, Abigail's tweet or the study that she's talking about, but and, you know, there are different medical procedures. So top surgery, if a trans uh, if a trans guy you know, wants to have his breast removed, that's a double mastectomy. That's a that's a common surgery. It's been done for a long time. You know, I'm sure there are complications with that, but there are more experimental surgeries like phalloplasty, which is the creation of a penis. And I've interviewed people who've had this procedure and there can be really horrific side effects. Just it's an incredibly difficult surgery and there can be really terrible side effects. The thing is, if someone like Jesse or I reported on this, we would be accused or Abigail Schreier, we would be accused of being transphobic and trying to deny trans people health care. If uh, Jezebel or some other some other outlet or a trans person reported the same thing, you know, they would be they would be lauded for saying for, for well, trying that's to what prove, happened. Jezebel right. did a piece on this horrible surgeon who, who just horrific outcomes, but that we should want that kind of reporting. Yeah, we, right. we should absolutely. Yeah. And, and but when Jesse and I do it or when Abigail does it, it's it's seen as transphobic. When other people do it, it's seen as elevating trans healthcare, which we should all want. We should not want people to have these horrific outcomes from their surgeries. Right. We should all want the same thing. But because this has it has been so filtered through these cultural lenses and some people are good and some people are bad, you know, it becomes sort of impossible. Um, and as Jesse said, you know, some of the some of the only good reporting on these issues is being done in the conservative media because the mainstream and left media is terrified to report on these things. Well, and not only that, but the, the, as you guys know, the other narrative that gets thrown back at you as a journalist and others, anybody poking these bears is you're going to cause children to kill themselves. I mean, they right. play that the ultimate Trump card. Any parent who in any way denies questions. Yeah. Right. Like that. That's scary to hear. Obviously, nobody wants that. But it's it's also it doesn't seem like an appropriate card to throw out there so cavalierly. No, it's dangerous. And we also don't know that it's true that if you uh, if you tell a kid, no, you cannot have puberty blockers at the age of 13, that does not mean that the child is going to kill themselves. And 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 that's a very irresponsible way to report on suicide. And this goes against all of the all of the, the acceptable standards of reporting on suicide. You do not want to spark a suicide contagion by telling children that if they don't get what they want when they want it, the inevitable outcome is, is suicide. Hmm. It's everything's sort of what do they say? Ass up her head <laughs> when it comes right. to the reporting <laughs> on this stuff. But I it's gotten personal with you guys. And Jesse, I confess, I didn't realize quite how bad it was until I read the the piece in Quillette. Um, so I hope I'm not. I love Coleman Hughes. You guys know him, right? Yeah. Um, so he had me on his podcast and he refused to ask me about my NBC cancellation and that whole mm -hmm. thing because he was and he said he didn't say it when I was on the air. He said it later when he was taping the intro and I heard it when I listened back to his intro. Um, I'm, I'm not going to ask her about it because one of the problems with cancel culture is you re-traumatize the person when you keep asking them about it and making them relive it. And I was like, yet another reason to love Coleman. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> so I don't mean to, you know, bring up just the awful things, Jesse. So forgive me, but I did want to ask you because what they're trying to do, these sort of trans activists, I guess they are trans journalists or not even necessarily trans journalists. Some of these are just um, like one of the ones he talks about in his piece is uh, 
a quote, popular parenting columnist named Nicole Cliff, who have come after you in really, and I want to say up front, zero proof for any of this. It's, it isn't true. But I mean, stuff like he sexually exploited at least a dozen trans women. And that well, that one's right. true. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that you a were dozen. sending out dick pics. Not true. <laughs> like, that's verifiable. But I mean, they went to the place that hurts. Yeah, I will say, I mean, one of the, uh, and I don't mind you asking, it's not traumatizing. I mean, it's infuriating. Um, yeah, basically, this started in 2016, sort of the light version of it after I wrote another controversial article about the um, a gender clinic in Toronto that was closed. But uh, after the 2018 Atlantic article, a lot of weird so-called sock puppet accounts popped up on Twitter basically trying to contrive some sort of Me Too event against me. They would say that I had sent inappropriate pictures, that I had sort of tried to hit on trans women, just basically anything from the sort of Me Too playbook you can imagine, all of it all of it fabricated. And I was able to ignore it because it was mostly just weirdos. And, and you don't necessarily want to give oxygen to weirdos uh, mm-hmm. by, by responding to them aggressively. But... Things really escalated when Slate's parenting advice columnist, Nicole Cliff, publicly announced that I was obsessed with trans women and that I had um, repeatedly tried to get them to meet meet me for lunch under shady circumstances. (laughs) I've laughed because I hate, I don't like people. I don't like meeting people for lunch. Um, (laughs) Intermittent fasting. He would never do it. Honestly, I'm a a grab a egg and cheese bodega kind of guy. Does it the intermittent fasting? 100%. We have to do a show on that. It actually works. (laughs) <laughs> starvation um, is yes is, is a good way to lose weight totally yeah. as it turns out if you don't actually eat you lose weight <laughs> <laughs> huh i'd never put two and two together like that um, i eat i just don't eat between the hours of 8 p.m and noon and then i eat like a oh. fiend and it's awesome oh, all right sorry keep going jesse so yeah bodega cheese that's more your thing by yourself cheese, not yeah, with real people exactly not with real people i hate real people um no and so just just seeing this stuff escalate and and always with no proof uh, and it gets so ridiculous. I mean, I, one one trans writer accused me of slut shaming her, and the start and the finish of that allegation is I complimented a piece she wrote about dating as trans. I just in a well, I'm on her I side. Said I, right? <laughs> <laughs> How dare you, monster! Um, so it, there's a really good book called Galileo's Middle Finger by a woman named Alice Drager. I believe Katie sends it to people who get sort of publicly shamed. And and it's about what happens on the left if you're seen as crossing certain lines. And most of the book is about the horrific rumors that get spread against people, often with no proof, uh, for for doing this. I'm lucky that this all happened to me in my mid-30s rather than my mid-20s because I genuinely think it would have ruined my career otherwise. If I hadn't yet mm-hmm. been established as a journalist and had good editorial contacts, who who would want to commission a piece from someone like me with all this stuff floating around online? I just, it infuriates me there's no accountability for professional journalists who spread these lies, delete the tweets, never apologize. If we can't agree that journalists shouldn't spread public slander about their perceived enemies I, what's left with the journalism why should anyone trust us so that's what's that's what's really gotten me about this people can mm. misinterpret my work they can call me transphobic but to just fabricate lies about someone that it's been an unpleasant experience well and and i i see you fighting back now sometimes and i like it there was somebody out there um her name is i guess she's a video game developer uh brianna Wu. Who oh, tweeted yeah. out about you? She she piled on and said, "I have my own Jesse Single stories. I've never shared publicly. One day I will, and I have receipts." As if like 
you gave her a receipt after you harassed her or were creepy to her. I'm like, and here's your receipt for my treatment. Anyway, I love it because that is so it's disgusting because that's what's like a middle schooler, sociopathic middle schooler. But it's been done in the Me Too movement with people saying, I've got my own stories about this guy. You know, one day I'll tell him. And sometimes they come through. That happened in the Andrew Cuomo case with the accuser number one. Um, So I think it has this tendency of getting people to believe it. And you were you quickly respond saying Brianna should share these stories immediately. I think it's really important to get to the bottom of this. Oh, what a shock. No receipts were provided. No additional claims were made. And they never will be. Well, the, the great uh, the the great thing about that particular story. So Brianna Wu is not just a video game developer. She ran for Congress Congress twice, um, did not win as 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 clearly. Um, but one of our followers offered to put up a thousand dollars if she would share the receipts, and then other people started started pledging money. It was the safest bet you po- you could have possibly made. But we got like sixty thousand dollars of pledges that. You know, people would donate to the charity of Brianna Wu's tro- choice if she could just provide the, the evidence that she claimed that she had, um, that Jesse had, you know, done something untowards to her. And she just, you know, never happened. So that's so honestly, amazing. Right. So I think that she was actually harming trans children. I mean, think of how many trans orphans $60,000 could have could have uh, could have fed. <laughs> Good point. Coming up in one second, we're going to get into LGBTQ. What is what does Q mean exactly? I've heard different things. They're going to walk me through it and we're going to talk about why there are so many letters. Is it necessary? What does it say? Is that virtue signaling? Should the B still be in there? We'll, we'll get into all of it. Plus, we're going to turn to the latest police involved shooting out of Minnesota. Um, as you know, this officer, Kim Potter, now uh, had discharged her weapon instead of her taser and she killed a young man, Dante Wright. And there have been riots and there are now charges and we're going to talk to our guests about it. But first this. Now, Katie, let me ask you about being a turf. <laughs> this, is, this is what J.K. Rowling has claimed to be. They've used this term against you. Just explain what it is and how you get labeled that. Sure. So a TERF is a radical, a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. I'm not trans-exclusionary and I'm not a radical feminist. So this does not apply to me whatsoever. I don't think it applies to J.K. Rowling either. It's interesting, nope. you know, Jesse gets these, uh, he gets allegations or, or rumors about this sort of like weird sexual innuendo because he's a straight man and I'm a lesbian. So people call me a TERF. Um, so it's, this is just, it's, so it's basically stereotypes. You're just applying stereotypes to us, uh, which seems problematic to me. Um, so, so this is a term that is used. A lot of people say that it's a slur. I don't totally think that it's a slur, but it is definitely not a term of an, of endearment and it is used just to shut down conversations. It's basically, it's a, it's a synonym for transphobic. So in my case, what happened was that in 2017, I wrote an article for the stranger Seattle's alt weekly, um, where I was a staff writer on detransitioners. And it was a, a, it was not an opinion piece. It was just sort of a profile of six or seven of people who had gone through this experience. And I, I, I reread it recently and I realized that it was sort of, I, I went kind of overboard uh, reassuring people or trying to reassure people that the existence of detransitioners doesn't in, in any way invalidate trans identities. And I think trans adults should have access to healthcare and, and, and really sort of hedged um, in a way that I probably wouldn't do now. Um, it was sort of embarrassing to reread that and see how sort of cautious I was um, mm-hmm. with this piece. Um, but there was a really crazy outcry and it wasn't just online, although of course it was online, but people, uh, somebody burned stacks of the newspaper and sent me video of it. And, uh, people put oh, flyers wow. all around Seattle calling me transphobic. There are stickers around Seattle calling me 
uh, transphobic. There's another one calling me a Jordan Peterson apologist. Um, there's nope. a, a picture of my face uh, that says I'm a Nazi sympathizer. And okay, so this, sure. Right. And this is, Seattle's a pretty small town. Um, and so this was not just, you know, I lost tons of friends. Um, I was basically ostracized. What? I heard at one point there was a, there was a photo of me. Somebody printed out a photo of me and put it in a urinal at a gay bar in Seattle, a gay bar that I had, that I had been to and enjoyed. Um, so, so this went, you know, it was online, but it was also offline in a way that was very disturbing. Um, and if you read the piece, I think anybody who gen who like actually reads the piece will see that it is, there's nothing transphobic about it. And in fact, argues in favor of, of adequate, you know, good healthcare for trans people. Um, so it was just this, it was a very bizarre experience to see sort of this caricature of, of myself um, as a, mm. you know, an evil transphobic bigot um, emerge from this, from this deeply reported story that ha actually had trans sensitivity readers. Um, not a word that well, I but at can, the time. But... Can we be honest about there, there's something going on with lesbians and the trans community activists. I distinguish the activists from the community writ large because I just don't think they are represented by these very loud, very bullying activists. But there's something going on because, you know, Abigail talked about this in her book and, in, and on my show when she was talking about how it's no longer considered cool to be lesbian. Sorry, Katie. I know, and, um, I know. We're, Katie was we're never over cool. lesbianism. That's true. That's true. Right. And this has actually been true for, for years. Um, you know, queer, it's cool to be queer. It's not cool to be a lesbian because lesbians are seen, and they, I'm sort of generalizing here, um, but in, in many circles, lesbians are seen as, as exclusionary because lesbians are, you know, female homosexuals who are same-sex attracted, who sort of by definition or the old definition, um, you know, males, trans women would not be would not be included in sort of their their sexual interest there are plenty of lesbians who date trans women or trans guys and call themselves lesbians that's also a thing um but sort of the old definition is often seen as seen as a uh, problematic um yeah so so, so i mean aren't you by by definition exclusionary ex exclusionary if you're a gay man or a, or a lesbian yeah. woman i mean yes you're yeah. exclusionary i mean or i'm exclusionary person. too as a, as a straight person right there's only one right. one group right. i like in that way the that's what's so weird about this is yeah. I, i've like straight men seem to be no one seems to be focusing on straight men who are a much larger group than lesbians and, and what our sort of preferences are it's this weird focus on lesbians per se that i don't i, I i've had trouble understanding 100 well, percent. i've noticed it too go ahead Katie. and so it also doesn't so there's lots of drama within sort of the lesbian community or what would have been formerly known as the lesbian community, which is sort of queer, <laughs> queer women. Um, there's lots of infighting and drama about whether or not, you know, uh, lesbian spaces should be allowed to be female only. You don't see that in gay male spaces. So if you have a like a, a dance party that's for specifically for lesbians, chances are there's going to be some complaints if you even use the term lesbian in your advertising or whatever, because that's seen as exclusionary. You don't see that in gay male spaces. So wait, I'm can sure I just ask you, you? So you're yeah. supposed to say queer instead, right? Right. Like what's the difference? Can you just explain how how is that term it, the way it's used? What's the difference between being well, a lesbian and being queer? I mean, now queer is sort of meaningless because queer has expanded to also mean like heterosexuals who are polyamorous or kinky. So it's basically anything that isn't like a monogamous heterosexual um, sort of traditional relationship because people want to opt into it, I think, because everybody wants to be special. Um, so you have, you know, people who would not have been considered queer a couple of years ago have now opted into this, into this. Uh, into and it this used label. to be a slur. Now it's been embraced. Right. Now it's like, right. a, you're allowed to say that now? I mean, right. I, you not have to if you're say not. 
Yeah, you do? Yeah. Can I say it? Can somebody who's straight you have say to. it? Yeah. It, I mean, it is it is the acceptable term now. It is a way of, of like signaling your allyship is to use the term. Is queer. that what the Q is on LGBTQ? Because somebody told me the Q is actually questioning. I was like, I thought it, it was queer. I don't understand. It, yeah, it just depends on who you ask. I mean, it's the acronym Q, that's is... QAnon, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're in there now? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Too many letters. Yes, very inclusive. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry, but if it's if it's queer, d- didn't we cover it with bi, sort of? And it's like too many letters. They, I don't think that questioning, by the way, should get its own letter. That's that. Right. They shouldn't get a letter. Just, LGBT is mean, enough. That just means that you're an adolescent if you're questioning. And and bi <laughs> is now problematic too because bi presupposes that there are only two genders. So really, what you if you're if you want to be like like the best, you know, the best queer, the best ally, which you are, is pan, which means you are attracted to all genders, all forty-seven oh genders. So it's going to be LGBTQ soon. Right. We're just going to get rid of the L and the B. It'll just be Q and P from now on. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> I'm so, so confused. <laughs> so there's lots of tension within the queer community. And I should say there isn't really such a thing as the queer community. Um, there's, you know, just like there's no such thing as the black community or the white community. There, This is a population that oftentimes doesn't get along, that oftentimes doesn't like each other and doesn't socialize. Um but yes, there's lots of tension. And a lot of it tends to be generational where you have older gay men and lesbians who sort of don't understand or, or don't appreciate the new, uh, the new rules being imposed upon us. I wrote about this for Andrew Sullivan's newsletter and it did not go over well, I will, I will to put it mildly. Um, but there <laughs> is a thing, and it, this isn't just lesbians, but there are lots and lots of females who are either opting into to sort of the non-binary identity or transitioning. And I've seen this in my own friend circle in a way that is kind of mind-blowing. I mean, I, I should keep a spreadsheet of everybody's pronouns now because it seems like half of the women that I know are now trans or non-binary and had to, you know, have changed their names. Some of them have gotten surgery, some of them um, haven't, and just sort of opt into this non-binary thing. But it is it is a trend. And even saying that it's a trend is something that people think is offensive. But I do think that this is a trend. It's a social contagion. And that makes sense because lots of human behavior is, I mean, most human behavior, all human behavior possibly is socially influenced. And there's this idea that if you think that there is some social influence on, on what is happening, that that is somehow deeply offensive because no, it has to be about this deep internal identity, this deep sense of who you really are, and there can't be any social influence on that. So if somebody says that they're trans or non-binary, it can't possibly be influenced by the people around them, by their peers, you know. But, but that's just everything we do. All everything we do is, is offensive now. Yeah, I mean, like, right. you guys know that. Everything we do is offensive. Yeah. You can't, if you cannot tiptoe through the line, through the landmines of life in 2021 America with, without stepping on one. I mean, you're just, they're everywhere. So you're going to offend. And by the way, I love that on Twitter, you say your pronouns are me, me, me. (laughs) These are my pronouns. Me, me, and back to me. Well, there is Um, just sort of a a narcissism about this, Um, you know, this identity, identitarianism that we're seeing right now. I mean, when I was when I was a, a younger person and sort of coming into my own sexual identity, the idea was to get rid of labels. We would talk about how labels didn't define us. And now it's like the more labels you can put on yourself, the higher you are in the hierarchy. I know. Uh, I, I, I refuse to do it. I I'm supportive of the trans community. Love you supporting you rooting for you, but I'm not going to say my pronouns, figure it out. If you want to say your pronouns, you want to tell me privately what they are. I'm happy to go by whatever your pronouns are, but I'm just not going to run it, walk into a room, say my pronouns. And if that makes me a turf, 
Huh. Oh, well, I've been called worse. Right. Um, all right. Let me shift gears with you for a second, because I just want to hit you guys up on your for your take on a couple of the things in the news today, because um, I think you're left leaning. But I'm interested in your in your opinion on things like uh, what's happening in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. You, you saw that this 20 year old man, uh, Dante Wright, was killed by a police officer there, a white woman. He was black because she pulled what she thought was her taser. This is her explanation, but it was, in fact, her gun. And she shot him and he died. And now there's, we've had a couple of days of riots in, in Minneapolis or in, in this town, Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. And 60 people were arrested for the riots there and so on and so forth. I am, I, we're going to get into this in a second, but I don't understand why the city manager had to be fired because he said, and he's a black man, by the way, the city manager, because he said, I think we should, you know, she's entitled to due process. Now she resigned, the cop resigned. And he just said before, like the mob comes for her because it was at this like city hearing. He's like, she's entitled to due process. He got fired just for saying that. And I have to tell you, it disturbs me. No one's defending the woman's, if you believe what she said, mistake. And it sounds like it was genuine because on tape she goes, oh, my God. And she goes, taser, taser, taser. Then she fires and she goes, oh, my God, I shot him. It was in my gun. So it's pretty clear that it was a mistake, but we'll see. But why shouldn't we have an investigation? Why shouldn't we have due process? Why must we just appease the mob immediately by saying, yes, she's awful. And apparently we've got to go with racist and she's afforded to no process whatsoever. Yeah, it's super disturbing. I, uh, you know, uh, Chelsea Handler at, during the Chauvin trial tweeted something about like, why should we have trials uh, if this whole thing was on video? Um, and I, you know, which is sort of the same point, you know, that due process is somehow doesn't uh, doesn't apply or shouldn't apply um, if we think that the crime was bad enough, which is just a, a terrible trend. You know, I think this was one of my sort of um, criticisms of Me Too. You know, we need to have due process. Claims should never just stand on their own. We shouldn't hashtag believe women or hashtag believe victims. We should always do an investigation. And defending that principle is incredibly important or should be incredibly important, especially for liberals, especially for people like us. And one of the things that disturbs me about this trend that we've seen in recent years is that liberals are are, are giving up that mantle, the, the mantle of, of actual liberalism, where due process is important, free speech is important, that we defend the rights of people who have done terrible things because the principle should be more important in these individual cases. And uh, we are not seeing that right now. Yeah. And you, you've got people like Rashida Tlaib who tweets out after this happened. And I quote, it wasn't an accident. Okay. She's going to be the arbiter. Like she just knows she's in the woman's head. It wasn't an accident. Policing in our country is inherently and intentionally racist. Dante Wright was met with aggression and violence. I am done with those who condone government-funded murder. No more policing, incarceration, and militarization. It can't be reformed. That This literally is what Black Lives Matter, in their chapter in your neck of the woods in Seattle, has said explicitly, open the jails, get rid of right. the justice system. No more courts, no more prisons, and we've heard on a wider basis, no more cops, because it's, it cannot be reformed and it's government-funded murder. This is a sitting U.S. Congresswoman. This person is insane because, as we all know, what would happen if if her world came about is those of us with any sort of money in our pockets would be just fine. And people who live in the poor communities would get killed in astronomical numbers. 
Right. right. I, I tweeted something about this, about how, uh, how you know, sure, like, let's do this and rich people will hire private security and poor people can do like community watch or whatever. This is also a losing position when it comes to democratic politics, because if you look at polling, including polling of black populations, they don't say that they want you know, the police defunded. They don't say that they don't want prisons to to exist anymore. What they say is they want better policing. And sometimes that actually means more policing. They want their neighborhoods to be safe. Like everybody should want their neighborhoods to be safe. I mean, that's what's so frustrating about this is there's been decades of polling suggesting, as you would expect, that if you're a black American in a low income area, you have like a, a tortured relationship to the police. I, I think police mm-hmm. are abusive all the time. I I'm from an upper middle class white family and my own family members and myself have had multiple run ins with with police who were jerks and not obviously not as bad as being assaulted or killed. But it it frustrates me that this is sort of seen as like the left position or even the like person of color position when polling shows that black people want police to show up to protect them on average. We can't speak for every member of a group, but they also don't want to be treated poorly by them. This shouldn't be a surprise if you just look at the polling. So I think that a lot of the reporting on this has been terrible and has been very, frankly, soft on this abolitionist position that is, is really half-baked. Like they, they can't answer basic follow-up questions about what it would mean. It's also a distraction because someone was just killed for basically no reason because of a horrible error. And we're talking about police abolition, which is not going to happen versus right. Right. how to try to make sure that doesn't happen again. I don't even know how you make sure that doesn't happen again. I feel like this woman, when I first saw it, I thought, okay, so she must be a newbie. You know, she must have just panicked in a tense moment. And the guy was resisting arrest. And that's a that's an intense situation for any officer. She'd been on the force for 20 years. I think she did the right right thing in resigning. There's no future for her in that police department. The police chief also resigned. That's just a political move. He didn't need to go. She made a terrible mistake. If I make a mistake in this job, I have the opportunity to come back on and correct it and, you know, write the record. You guys, too, in your jobs, it's not the case for a police officer. And certainly in this environment, mistakes aren't, aren't quote, allowed, right? They're not going to be allowed at all. I have no problem with this woman losing her job. Um, a man lost his life. She can at least lose her job. But people are saying they want her to be charged. It's like, OK, so we can do that. Um, then we will have due process. Then there's going to be a system to figure out whether, in fact, she committed any crime, because all the evidence we've seen so far suggests it was an accident. And none of the evidence suggests it was racist. She was white. He was black. But he was resisting arrest. That's why. And even the officers on site were saying a taser would have been appropriate, given what this guy was doing. The fact that she reached for the wrong thing is awful. But I don't know. We jump immediately to racism in all these situations now when the, the the race of the person being arrested is black. I think that, you know, the media is very complicit in this. Because, here's an example. So uh, I live in a small town in Western Washington. Over the summer, a couple months after the, the death of George Floyd, a guy was killed by police about 13 miles from me. Um, and we don't know this. We don't know the full story. He was uh, he was sitting on an on an overpass, apparently, and something happened. Uh, he was unarmed and he was shot and killed by police. The Seattle Times, the local newspaper, didn't even send a reporter the 13 miles across the water to report on this story. It got almost no press locally. Why is that? Well, the guy was white. If he had been been black, it would have been a major story. There would have been riots and protests in the cities. And if you look at the data, and I know, Megan, you've talked about this on your show. If you look at the data, what we can see is that white people are also killed at, at, you know, at significant rates. Actually, not even significant. This is all actually pretty rare. 
by cops. We just we know that it is not only people of color who are being killed by police. And we also know that white cops are not more likely to, to, to kill unarmed people than uh, than cops who are you know black or brown. But instead of the media contextualizing this and saying, you know, George Floyd was one of uh, 14 or 15, I'm not sure what the, mem- what the number is, but 14 or 15, uh, you know, black men killed by police in 2020, every time they talk about these incidents, they leave people with the impression that there are many, many more police killings of unarmed people than there actually are. And I've done this. I've asked people, I've said, you know, how many, how many, you know, unarmed black men do you think were, were killed by police last year? And the answer is always at least a thousand because the media doesn't actually contextualize this. And if the media started doing this, I think it would give people less of a skewed perspective of what's going on. And the thing is, if you want to, if you want to stop police shootings, ending racism, doing implicit bias training, isn't the actual, isn't going to do it. That's not going to do not, it. Not, nothing at all. It will do no. absolutely nothing at all. I mean, I right. do think de-escalation training. Yes. Sure. is clearly needed. I mean, that is sure. a thing. And I remember I, I interviewed four African-American female police chiefs from that um, sort of the North Carolina uh, quarter, that, that that area, Raleigh-Durham. And um, they were saying how they very rarely had physical confrontations on the job because as women who tended to be more slight, you know, in stature, they had to learn de-escalation. They, they really had no choice. They, they knew they weren't going to be pulling their gun all the time. And they wanted to get to a point where and they could handle it. And, and one of my favorites, um, she was hilarious. She was like, she showed me her beautiful, long, beautiful nails. And she goes, do you think I'm going to mess these up on some loser <laughs> suspect? She's like, hey. anyway, we need more of that for sure. But we also have to understand this is an inherently dangerous job. And another lesson in all of it, in most of these cases is don't resist arrest. Go back later, fight it later. If it's a bad cop, if it's a racist cop, if it's a bad arrest, you can fight it. On the scene, all the odds are against you, all of them. So it's right. just there. There's a responsibility within the black community, within the white community, both to teach our, especially our young people, don't resist arrest. It's a sure. losing proposition. You're you're never going to win. You're never going to successfully flee the police. That's definitely true. And there's also we need to also be talking about mental health. You know, uh, there's also a correlation between police react, you know, police get called because of a, 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 you know, sort of a mental health welfare check and somebody ends up dead. You know, there are ways to reform the system um, that don't involve defunding the police and actually might involve giving them more money in some cases Mm -hmm. um, or reallocating it in different ways. Um, But yeah, this idea that we're just going to get rid of police, get rid of prisons, it's never going to happen as, as Jesse mentioned. Um, And so it just seems like a distraction, a way of sort of signaling how, uh, how, how progressive you are on this particular issue when it's not going to help anything, it's not going to happen. And if it did happen, it would probably make things worse for the very people who you should be protecting. So Jesse's got a new book out uh, talking about it's called Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. And um, it's that's sad to learn, but it can't. And it's better to know rather than continue to practice some of these ridiculous techniques, thinking you're helping yourself when you're not. And uh, my old pal Cheryl Sandberg in her book Lean In included one of these, and Jesse is ready to debunk it. Are you doing it right now? Are you wasting your time thinking this one particular thing is going to help you at home or the office? Stay tuned to find out what it is. But first, I want to bring you a feature we have here on the program called Sound Up. And this is where we play you a soundbite that we think you should hear that's been making the rounds, and we'll talk about it. And in this particular case, it is the sound of the city manager who got fired, the one we were just talking about at uh, Minnesota, who got fired simply for calling 
for due process for Kim Potter, the police officer who has now resigned from her position after what she says was an accidental shooting. Listen. In response to the question about termination, uh, all employees working for the city of Brooklyn Center uh, are entitled to due process with respect to discipline. Uh, This employee will receive due process. Due process discipline uh, will be determined. If I were to say anything else, um, I would actually be uh, contradicting the idea of due process. This guy got fired for saying that. Fired. What is happening to us? One city council member who, who actually voted to oust him came out and said, I did it because I feared retaliation by the protesters. If I had voted to keep him in, quote, he was doing a great job. I respect him dearly. Again, this is a black man who loses his job in the wake of the shooting of another black man who was resisting arrest, not to justify anything, but just for perspective on why the situation was so tense. And so he says, let's you're asking me if she's going to be fired. We're going to give her a process. No, not only is that not OK, you're fired, too. Police chief's gone. Right. And now when, when we when we taped. With Jesse and Katie, I actually didn't know this, but just moments moments after we say goodbye to them, we just found out Kim Potter's being charged with second degree manslaughter. The the now former Brooklyn Center Minneapolis police officer Kim Potter is going to be charged with second degree manslaughter. That's the same charge, one of them, that Derek Chauvin's charged with. So somebody thinks that his kneeling on the neck and everything that happened in that case for nine minutes warrants the same charge against this woman, which we all saw unfold on camera, where she says, taser, taser, taser. And somebody's going to say she was absolutely reckless um, in pulling out her gun and firing it. Now, I guess you could make the case. Did she not recognize what she was feeling was a gun and not a taser? Um, well, if you want to do process for that to figure it out, you got to go. You're going to lose your job, too. You have to be quiet and just accept whatever, whatever punishment the mob wants. That's how it's going to be. Got it? Mob rule. The mob threatens the city council with riots, which are underway, and they just do whatever they think they need to do. It's not about conscience. It's not about the law. It's not about procedure. It's about avoiding the wrath of the mob. He's fired, and maybe you'll be fired too if you say anything the mob doesn't like. That's our country right now, and it's pathetic. Back to our guests in one second, but first this. Now, one instance in which the police did a very good job was when they arrested Bernie Madoff. <laughs> just transitioning now. To, <laughs> that sounds like a really good segue. I realize this has absolutely nothing to do with really our subject matter, but I just I want to talk about it. He's he's dead. Bernie Madoff died. And I was just looking through the facts, you know, on the the it's not a no bit yet, but just the right quick write ups about his death and his life. He was 82. He had been treated for kidney disease that was terminal. I mean, I'm sure you don't treat anything too aggressively when you're in prison. And he he stole, they estimated, $65 billion from people. He had 37,000 victims in 136 countries, everybody from Steven Spielberg to Kevin Bacon to Ellie Wiesel, which is truly disgusting, um, you know, Nobel, Nobel Prize winner and Holocaust survivor. And he died. And I just like that story was so big. He was arrested in December of, of 08. And I just think about like the the carnage left in his wake. His son killed himself. Um, the family was just completely ruined. The other the other son died pretty young of cancer after 
Bernie went to jail. Anyway, any thoughts on on Bernie Madoff and the, his passing <laughs> and his life? <laughs> Rest in peace, Bernie. I was, yeah, was going to make a joke about how, how he inspired our podcast, but then... <laughs> The description is, got very dark. That's the next stage of the blocked and reported empire is, uh, is financial investment. Yeah. Could we announce our new uh, pyramid scheme on your podcast, Megan? Would that be okay? <laughs> Send one Does it have to do to with that GoFundMe? Yeah, <laughs> it does yeah, have to do with the GoFundMe. The GoFundMe is actually to fund your career as a budding rap artist, isn't it, Jesse? <laughs> exactly. Thank you for mentioning that. Clearly, white collar crime does not get the attention it deserves um, I, compared to the you know low level drug crime or things like that. Yep. Katie, people question our sense of morality a lot, so we should just take this opportunity and use Megan Kelly's platform to say that we disagree with what he did. We do, we, except when he ripped off Eli Wazell. That was fine. <laughs> <laughs> I always, I'm, I'm like, like constantly having to sidestep Katie's just endless anti-Semitism on the podcast. So I, I'm, I'm sorry this came up. It's, I identify as Jewish, Jesse. I'm, I've, I've opted in. What? Speaking of that, what's your rap name, Jesse? <laughs> Juicy. How many listeners do you have? I don't know. This is a bad idea. You could say because you're Jewish. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> Aren't those the rules? How's it going so far? You have a lot of fans. Yeah, we um. So when we launched the podcast uh, or the Patreon, which is sort of our premium subscription subscription service, a almost a year ago now, I said that uh, if we got to a certain level of of dollars per month, I would release a rap about psychology's replication crisis, which is also the subject of a a book of mine, The Quick Fix, that just came out. That's where we're That's going where we're next. Going. Excellent. Um, yeah, and then I was, um, I think, a mere eight or nine months late, but I finally released it uh, the day my book came out, actually. And it was, I had some help from a psychologist named David Pizarro at Cornell who made me sound uh, less like what you're hearing now. Uh, and I thought, I don't know, Katie thought it wasn't horrible, and I, I, I trust her judgment. Oh, yeah, I'm a real mm -hmm. connoisseur of rap music. You should really trust my judgment. My, I was actually impressed with the length. It was like almost five minutes and lots of the words rhymed. Um, I thought it was going to be much, much worse than it was. It was sort of impressive. Yeah, and if people want the, uh, want access to that for whatever reason, um, they can uh, join our Patreon. People should, we should use that as a quote for our podcast. I thought it was going to be much, much worse than it was. <laughs> New tagline. <laughs> So can I tell you, I, I was listening to you guys and some terrible music started and I hit the fast forward, fast forward, fast until I got past it. And then I heard you talking about what it was and I almost rewound, but no, I didn't. So it's, you should it's listen to it. It's actually, it's actually impressive. It, the, it's okay. been linked to birth defects in like 17 states. <laughs> All right. Can we talk about your book? Because I'm interested in this. You basically are Tell us the name of it and tell us what you, my take is you're sort of debunking some of the crazy pseudoscience that we've been depending on in this country to make ourselves feel better about ourselves for the past 30 years. But you're not totally like shitting on it. It's not like a, there's no potential merit to it, but you're like major asterisks on all of the self-esteem research and all the stuff that's gone down. That's that's my take. You'll do a better job of naming the book and explaining it. Yeah. So the book is called The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. Uh, it, it stems from before Katie Herzog dragged me down into culture war hell with her. Mm -hmm. I, I worked at New York Magazine. I edited a uh, vertical about behavioral science and I sort of carved out a niche as someone who would be skeptical of the press releases you would get from Harvard or the University of Pennsylvania touting some incredible new finding about human behavior. So I decided to write a book that will basically help people you know, cut through the overhyped claims we often get from psychologists on issues like 
you know, the implicit association test, which can supposedly reveal your hidden racism, but but has very little evidence behind it. Uh, I do talk about the decades-long self-esteem craze, uh, which claimed that like all sorts of uh, societal problems, including crime, could be solved by improving people's self-esteem. There's also a military program that cost about $500 million that supposedly reduces PTSD and suicidality among soldiers, but no evidence to support that and just sort of a giant waste of money. So there's like, I don't know, if you look around the world, there's a lot to be skeptical of. And my goal with the book is to just help the average reader who might not have much of a background in social science um, have the right questions to ask when their work or their school adopts one of these ideas. So basically, you've taken away hope from millions of people. Yeah, that's what we do. We're the, we're the hope stealers. <laughs> just those things you thought might get you out of this crazy ass life and make you succeed from whatever miserable life you're in. Wrong. None of it's going to work <laughs> unless the system <laughs> radically changed. You're completely screwed. However, well, if you listen to Blocked and Reported, you can't your your teeth will be whiter, your skin will be clearer, your finances will improve. <laughs> exactly. Well, so one of the things my editor nudged me on really helpfully is like a lot of these ideas do have some merit behind them. There's a kernel of truth there. And we have, you know, for individuals, things like cognitive behavioral therapy seem to have some evidence behind them. What doesn't work is the idea that you can give everyone an implicit association test and address, you know, a problem of racial discrepancies that that dates back hundreds of years or that you can improve se- kids' self-esteem and suddenly they'll be better students. Uh, a lot of these ideas, when you actually say them out loud, like it's sort of surprising anyone believed in them in the first place. But what about grit? That was the one I was like, so I think of grit, I don't think of grit as like, doubling down determination, like I'm just going to try, try, try to get an A on this test. Although I, I understand that's a definition. I see it more as like, stand tall, take life's punches, forge forward, stop licking your wounds and feeling sorry for yourself. But how are you defining grit? Because that's one of your targets saying, eh, this one's still a little shaky. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't try. Don't put effort in anything. Uh, adopt the Jesse single technique. Um, Grit was this new scale developed by a social psychologist named Angela Duckworth. Uh, She won a MacArthur Genius Grant for her work on that and other stuff. She basically claimed that like perseverance and passion matters way more than we think as compared to sort of innate ability, IQ, SAT scores, physical ability. And this really caught on, especially in educational circles. No one really bothered to do the like careful research required to test if this is actually true until recently, at least. And it, it just turned out to be very overhyped. Obviously, if the choice is like train your kid to be hardworking versus not hardworking, being hardworking helps. But the question of how much it helps or, or how much that matters relative to their innate ability, the answer there is maybe like not what we want it to be. The fact is that intelligence in a lot of settings might matter 30 to 40, uh, might be 30 or 40 times more important quantitatively than, than grit. That's so disempowering. Like, if you don't have, so you don't have, if you don't have a high IQ, you're screwed. Well, no, I, I think there's so many other things that can factor into your success in life. And, and especially if you can find the right niche and find what you're good at. IQ itself only explains like 40 to 50% of success. There's still a lot of room there for other stuff. But the question of whether you can just like train yourself to be grittier and that on its own will make you much more successful, that's what I'm skeptical of. And I realize like not everyone wants to hear that. But again, if you're if you're a science journalist, you sometimes have to deliver bad news. What about um, the power posing? Can you explain that? 
power posing is this idea that if you stand like Superwoman, uh, Superwoman, Wonder Woman, with your hands on your hips or in some and other legs apart, legs apart, some sort of uh, uh, expressive, expansive pose for a minute or two, uh, a psychologist named Amy Cuddy and her colleagues produce research suggesting this will help make you more uh, assertive. It'll help make you better in negotiation settings. And it's sort of looped in with the Sheryl Sandberg lean in movement as like a way to help women uh, improve in the workplace. Uh, there's basically no evidence to suggest this is true, not to be a bummer again. Uh, and no, you know, that's that an- one makes perfect sense to me. What the what? First of all, if you're standing like Wonder Woman and leaning in, it's not going to end well for you. You're definitely you're going to topple forward. over. It's very dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it doesn't make any sense that the way you stand at work is going to. And I understand they don't like crossing arms. It projects like, you know, you're closed off. But, you know, it's really so comfortable to stand with your arms cl- crossed. It just is. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, what about yeah, squatting, that- Jesse? Do you have any information on that? That's how I usually like to do my meetings. Yeah. Everyone should just be <laughs> squatting all the time. No yeah. chairs. Squatting yeah. and grunting are the pieces <laughs> of success, like caveman style. <laughs> You laugh, but I was subjected to one of these very classes when I was in one in seventh grade and one in 10th grade, Jesse. And um, it was called Mayo, short for myself and others. And we were taught about self-esteem and we were taught how to be an active listener. And one of the things on the list, I remember this, was friendly grunts. And you say that to a group of 11 (laughs) and 12 year olds and then make them practice. And the whole room was like, (laughs) oh, you don't say (laughs) <laughs> this, this is not appropriate interaction. This is why it helps to grow up in sort of like a, a secular Jewish household because you get home from school from all that uplifting, like here's how to be a good person. You get like a lot of sarcasm and cynicism to balance it out. I feel bad for all you Gentiles. No, are you, you kidding should. me? If you're Catholic, I mean, oh, I, sorry, I, I feel like about the cat. It's even worse. Yeah, I please. I feel like that's the Jews and the Catholic are like right next to each other on the other than the Jesus being Christ thing. We are the same and the afterlife. <laughs> the, the mommy issues in particular, like they're very similar. And the guilt. And the guilt. Right. And the inability to be happy. All those things. <laughs> Just all, the, all that stuff. <laughs> um, so what kind of reception have you had? Because it's like, do people close this book feeling, because I always say like, it's better to know the truth, right? It's like, if you thought you had this great friend and then you find um, some letter they wrote about you, some email they wrote about you that's like, I actually can't stand her. She's horrible. It's better to know the truth. You know, the truth is whatever it is, it was the same yesterday as it is today. It's just your knowledge may advance. And so I feel like this book is in that vein, right? Like, sorry, but that stuff is actually not scientific. And, you know, it's if you want to use it to convince yourself otherwise, go for it. But the truth is it hasn't been proven out. Like, what are people going to feel when they when they close this book? Again, because of the influence of my editor, I think there's like a fair bit of optimism in there amongst all the debunking, which is what I want. I want people to feel like science is this powerful thing that can help us. We just need to understand it and understand its limitations. So, you know, the reception has been good. And and I think people don't like the idea that they've been hoodwinked. And the military one really gets to me because when you think about half a billion dollars, what the good that could have done for a population that comes back from war totally traumatized, that that went to a program that can in my view, be fairly called pseudoscience. I think anyone should be outraged by that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, before I let you go, can I ask you guys, because some of your tweeting and some of your banter about enjoying the pandemic has been absolute gold. You're, you're, you're not necessarily anti-lockdown. <laughs> Explain what you've most loved about the past year. I haven't put on hard pants in a year. That's been really nice. 
Um, mm. I, I sort of live a pandemic lifestyle anyway. I don't particularly like the mask, but not interacting with people, it's totally fine with me. I live a podcaster life. Podcaster lifestyle and pandemic lifestyle are very similar. Mm. It is nice being on your own. I mean, I'm, I'm in my children's playroom every day and it's awesome. Nobody bothers me except for Abby. And, you know, I had her before, so it's fine. Yeah. I mean, it's weird. This is part of the reason I'm a lefty. It's like, if you have some resources at your disposal, we've just been able to shield ourselves from all the worst parts of it. I mean, I can work from anywhere. I, I just, I don't know, not to end on a downer note, but so many people have been hit so hard from this and I feel so guilty that it's been relatively easy for me to ride out. And, um, I think maybe we can talk about this some other time, but I think that's one of the fundamental divides that, that would make it hard for me to ever be conservative. Like not, not that conservatives are arguing differently. I just, I sort of feel strongly that we don't have the protections in place we should given how wealthy a country we are. And I feel guilty that this has been relatively easy for me to, to um, ride out. So there's just a, a last little bit of basically virtue signaling as I sign off. <laughs> Jewish guilt. <laughs> Thank you. Just get, just keep trying to get those liberals back on your side, Jesse. You work it. Exactly. Yeah, I'm sure that'll do it. <laughs> well, listen, good luck with the book. Thank you both so much for being here. And uh, I hope we talk again. Thank you, Megan. Thanks for having us. It's been really great. So don't miss our show on Monday because we've got former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. This guy was a star in Republican politics. Now he's heading up a Young America's Foundation which is a conservative-leaning group that sort of tries to get the good word out to young people about the joys of being a conservative and sort of argues with folks on principle about why they think they have the better ideas and tries to get um, two young people to make sure they know this is an option for them, right? Like, you don't have to join the progressive side in order to be a good person. There are lots of good ideals on the other side as well. And he's got a plan right now, his group has, for getting organized on college campuses to fight back against some of the some of the woke stuff that we're seeing and some of the messaging. And it's actually beyond college campuses, K through 12. They unearthed a shocking story out of Ames, Iowa, just a, a week or so ago, ago, which we'll talk to him about. And there is a fun moment in this interview, which we just taped. You know, he helped prepare Mike Pence for the vice presidential debate. And he's got some thoughts on Kamala Harris and how she did and whether she's going to be the nominee for the Democratic Party in 2024. Oh, and by the way, is he going to run? Is he going to throw his hat in that ring? We get into all of it. Uh, it was a delightful exchange. And I give him credit for coming on because I think I've said before that he's boring. But he he wasn't at all. He was actually really interesting, interesting and we had fun. And I like the guy. And I think you will too. So that's next time. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megyn Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures.